Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come before you this morning, Lord, it is with hearts of joy to be able to come together around your word, Lord, to fellowship with brothers and sisters who love you, who love your word, to hear Sunday school or growth class this morning, Lord, where we heard your truth taught without fear and in all honesty. Lord, I thank you for teachers like that. I thank you for um, people who are willing to come up here and lead us in singing. But most of all, Lord, I thank you for the truth of your word. And I pray, Lord, that as I prepare to deliver this message, it will be true to your word and to your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. I do want to, as Tra- you got have a seat. I do want to, as Travis always does, um, say thank you to those who stood here and, and led us in worship this morning. Um, it's kind of tough when you get a call the morning of that says, hey, I'm sick. Can you fill in for me, right? They did a fantastic job, so we appreciate that. Um, this morning, as everybody has probably noticed, if you've been here a while, you know I am not Travis. I'm a bit taller. Um, but uh, Travis is out. He called me on Wednesday or sent me an email on Wednesday and said, hey, you think you could fill in? I'll probably be able to do it, So, you know, but just try to be ready in case. So if you know anything about how long it takes me to normally prepare a message, it's usually three months. So I tried to jam three months into three days. So we'll just trust the Lord that he's going to use it for his glory, right? Um, Those of you who hadn't noticed, the cornbread cup and chili bowl trophy have arrived. They are now at the back of the church, and you guys will be competing for those later. But for now, let's dive into the Word of God, shall we? All right, so here at PRC, we have some foundational truths. And one of those foundational truths is that Scripture is, in fact, breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And one of the reasons that we teach Scripture is so that it can be applied to our lives. So today, we are not going to continue in John because Travis is doing a two-part series, and I do not wish to try to move his series forward. He's going to do that well when he gets back next week. So we're going to step out of that, and today we're going to go to the book of James. We're going to be looking at James 3, verses 13 to 18. So as you read through the book of James, it reveals that it's a book that is a call for believers to live a life that reflects their faith. The central theme of this incredible book is that true faith results in good works. From the beginning, James illustrates the importance of living a life that demonstrates that faith is more than an intellectual understanding. True faith is alive, and it impacts every area of our lives. In today's passage, we'll see what it looks like when we put our faith into practice. We'll see how the wisdom we choose to practice is reflective of our faith and discover that there are two types of wisdom worldly wisdom, and godly wisdom. We'll contrast these two types of wisdom, and it's my prayer that we're going to agree on two theological truths when I'm done. First, worldly wisdom is sinful. And second, godly wisdom is a blessing and is well worthy of pursuit. So open your Bibles with me, if you would, please, to James 3, and I'll read beginning in verses or verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? 
By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. I'm sorry, no, I'm hearing like scratching or something. Are you guys hearing that too? Okay, then we'll just work through it. James begins this morning's passage with a question. Who is wise and understanding among you? Then, as he's done before, he immediately answers his own question by pointing out what a wise and understanding person looks like. By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. So James is telling us that the wise are those who exercise wisdom in meekness. Once again, James is not allowing his listeners to just be comfortable with having knowledge, but he's calling them out. He's calling them to act, to demonstrate wisdom by the lives they live. Just as he challenged the legitimacy of their faith that doesn't have works, he's challenging the legitimacy of their knowledge if they're not putting it into action by practicing wisdom. Much like our muscles become apathetic if we don't use them, wisdom too will be useless if it's not used properly. God gives us wisdom for the purpose of exercising and sharing it, not just hoarding knowledge. So let's start by recognizing that there's a difference between knowledge and wisdom. Knowledge is a collection of facts and ideas that we gather. We gather them through study, through experience, through training, maybe through investigation, observation, tons of ways that we can gather facts. We can gather information. Wisdom, however, is the ability to discern which aspects of our knowledge are actually true, right, lasting, and apply to life and practice. Knowledge is a perception of information. Wisdom involves action. Taking our knowledge and applying it to life. And just like anything else that involves action, we can use wisdom for both good and evil. And that brings us to our first theological truth, that worldly wisdom is sinful. So let's look at it. As with all sinful behavior, we want to avoid practicing worldly wisdom, so it's critical to know what worldly wisdom looks like. Important for us to be able to discern, identify, and know worldly wisdom in order to avoid being deceived or misled by it. So we're going to answer the following questions. Number one, what are the characteristics of worldly wisdom? Number two, where does worldly wisdom come from? And number three, what are the fruits of worldly wisdom? How does it manifest itself? How will we recognize it when we see it? In verses 14 and 15, we see some characteristics of worldly wisdom. Those are bitter jealousy, selfish ambition, earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. So let's take a look at each of those characteristics. 
bitter jealousy first. In his commentary on James, author R. Kent Hughes illustrates the significance of bitterness, or of bitter jealousy by sharing a story. And I thought it was fantastic, so I'm going to share it with you. The story is told of two men who lived in a certain city. One was envious and the other covetous. The ruler of the city sent for them and said he wanted to grant them one wish each with this provision, that the one who chose first would get exactly what he asked for, while the other man would get exactly twice what the first had asked for. The envious man was ordered to go first, but immediately he found himself in a quandary. He wanted to ask for something incredible for himself, but he knew that if he did that, the other guy would get twice as much. So he thought for a few minutes, and he said, I want one of my eyes to be put out. That's bitter jealousy, folks. Jealousy is a serious sin. Each of us needs to examine ourselves very, very carefully. Jealousy is something to be aware of. We need to look at ourselves and find out, is that a sin that we struggle with? And if we do, we need to take it to the Lord, ask his forgiveness for it, and ask him to help us grow through that. Because the last thing we want is to let better jealousy impact the decisions that we make. That is worldly wisdom. What about selfish ambition? Another dangerous characteristic for sure. Now, by definition, ambition in and of itself is not a bad thing. It simply is a desire to achieve a particular end. For instance, in Matthew 5, 6, we read, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. But if you look at the commentaries, they talk about that based on our language today, you could replace hunger and thirst for for an ambition for, right? They desire that. They want to be righteous. Righteousness is a good ambition. It's only the selfish ambitions that we, that we encounter that are sinful. So selfish ambition, another one to look out for. Another characteristic is it's earthly. Earthly wisdom is short-sighted and focuses on what benefits us in life here and now. Right? And it's also very center or self-centered. What's going to benefit me right now? If you're exercising earthly wisdom, you don't care about others around you. You care about yourself. And that's of the devil. Um, earthly wisdom does not consider eternity or the will of God. And we're told in Proverbs 9 and 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. When... The wisdom you're applying to life does not include the word of God, is not governed by reverent fear of the Lord. It is earthly and evil. What about unspiritual? Selfish ambition is unspiritual, which means that it's against or opposed to the spirit. Using wisdom in a way that benefits yourself at the expense of others or in a way that you know to be sinful is perverting the God-given gift of wisdom. When we pervert or twist even just a little bit any God-given gift, we turn them from traits that are given to us for the purpose of glorifying God to something that serves ourselves. In doing so, we make those attributes 
unspiritual. We turn good spiritual traits given to us by God into evil traits that stand opposed to him. Demonic. Finally, the last characteristic to show us just how sinful worldly wisdom is, is James' description of it as demonic. For something to be demonic means that it is like or from the devil. Worldly wisdom is not something to be flirted with. As with all evil, we are called to flee from it. Believers, do not allow yourselves to be tempted by worldly wisdom. It may initially seem sweet. You may initially benefit from it. But I promise it will catch up with you. Don't fall into that trap. All right, so having looked at the characteristics of worldly wisdom, we need to be on the, you know, so we know what we need to be on the lookout for, let's address our second question. Where does worldly wisdom come from? It's not a long point here, folks. This is an easy one. As we've already seen, worldly wisdom is based on what man has deduced from the world around him without consideration for the truths God has given us in Scripture. Worldly wisdom comes from two places. One, the heart of man. Remember, it's deceitful above all things. And, and number two, the mind of fallen man. As Hughes stated, worldly wisdom is radically evil because it comes from the world, the flesh, and the devil. So now we understand the characteristics of worldly wisdom, and we understand where it comes from. So let's answer our third question. What are the fruits of worldly wisdom? What does it look like when people are practicing it? Again, we can see the answer to the question in Scripture. Verse 16 says, Where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. If you are practicing worldly wisdom, you may be able to conceal your jealousy and selfish ambition for a while. But those are powerful emotions, and they will come out, and they will manifest themselves in division and in vile practices. As we've already talked about, the focus on self is what makes ambition evil. Examples of selfish ambition exist all around us. For instance, in the workplace, when we're willing to compromise integrity just a little bit to get that promotion or to get that transfer that we've always wanted, when we make advancing our careers the most important goal of our lives without consideration of the impact it will have in other areas of our lives, when we ignore questions such as, what will the new job, what will the impact of the new job have on my family? Or the time I spend in the word of God. What about my attendance at church? Is it going to keep me from doing that? Will those important things be negatively impacted by the change of profession? Instead, when confronted on these topics, we try to justify our decisions with motives like, if I make more money, I have more to give to God. Be honest with yourself. Do, you let your, do not let your heart deceive you. Examine yourself closely and ask yourself, do you desire the promotion for the glory of God or for your own sense of pride or status? For me, this is a personal one. I've had to look at that a number of times as I progressed through the police department and now where I'm at now. I had to think about what the impact this, this each position was going to have on me and on my ability to spend time with my family because God calls me to do that, right? I'm the head of this family. He's called me to be there and to be the head. 
You can't be the head if you're not present. You can't spend time in the Word of God if you're so exhausted or so committed or so pulled around by a cell phone that you can't spend time regularly in the Word. And if you have to miss the, the gathering of the body together because of work on a regular basis, you may need to look at what was your motivation for taking that position. Because you're missing the important things, folks. Just have to ask yourself this question. Why, if, if you want to be promoted to glorify God, why are you willing to compromise your integrity, your family, and or the regular practice of your faith to do it? And that's for you to decide. Unfortunately, selfish ambition also exists in the church. The problem existed in Paul's time and still exists today that men teach out of selfish ambition. In our growth class this morning, Anthony talked about some of the things you can hear from people, high-profile people in entertainment, just in the world, right? People know names, right? There's names you know, and you hear it, and you hear the things they talk about. And you see pastors, as they call themselves, or preachers, as they call, or whatever they're called, in churches that are willing to compromise. They will, they're willing to teach from worldly wisdom because they're not willing to accept the Word of God as the Word of God. They want to twist it. They want to pervert it. They want to teach something that makes the people that are listening to them happy. They want to tickle their ears. Why? Because that's how you grow a big church. Right? Please, when you hear me saying this, we need to be praying for those men and women who are willing to do that. Any preacher that you hear that is teaching anything other than the Word of God, it's wrong, right? And it's, wrong, it's right to be upset about it. But what do you do about it? You pray for that person. You pray that their eyes will be opened. You pray for those who sit under them, who truly just want to know who God is and how they can live for Him, that they'll be pulled out of that or that their hearts will be changed and that they can be pulled from that. It's a terrible thing. Don't support it at all. But we must not just stand here and rage against them. We must pray for them because that's how hearts are changed. We can say all day how what they're teaching is false, how it's leading people astray. They're going to buy none of it because for them, it's profitable. We've got to pray that God will change their hearts and that he will deliver the people that he has that are sitting under that kind of teaching right now. We need to be grateful for teachers who are committed to being faithful shepherds and teachers, wherever they are. Those who enter the sheepfold through the gate and not by climbing over the rails, as Pastor Travis warned us about last week. Selfish ambition can also be seen among members of the church. I'd ask you to raise your hand if that's you, but that wouldn't be bad. Right? But let me throw out some examples of selfish ambition, right? Are you that person that, like, I don't think he should have taught that from that passage? Or why doesn't he ever teach on whatever that topic should be? Right? Why are you doing that? Do you get upset because your favorite song wasn't sung on Sunday? Do you get upset because we sing too many hymns and not enough worship songs or vice versa? Right? That's divisive. And it's selfish. We need to check ourselves. 
And you know the worst thing about folks like that? They are often, very often, willing to start looking around for others who are willing to support them so they can get that change made that they want to see made. Please don't be that person. We are working together as a body to glorify God. Don't be selfish. Exercise godly wisdom, not worldly wisdom. James identifies behavior of those acting out of selfish ambition in the final clause of verse 14. Do not boast and be false to the truth. Those who are acting out of selfish ambition boast in their accomplishments and claim to walk in God's wisdom. However, both false teachers and divisive members in a church result in disorder, and God calls their actions vile. Vile is an extraordinarily strong word. It means to, mor- to be morally despicable or abhorrent. That's not my opinion. That's God's. This is the type of behavior that God abhors. He hates it. Woe to false teachers and those who work, walk in worldly wisdom, perverting the truth of God's word for their selfish gain. Woe to those who cause divisiveness within the church based on their personal preferences. Please exercise the wisdom you have been given and honestly examine your heart to see if you are harboring selfish ambition. It can start small and it can change your life if you're not willing to address it. So having described the first theological truth, let's look at the second. Godly wisdom is a blessing and worthy of pursuit. As we've seen, worldly wisdom is sinful. We want to avoid it, and instead we want to live our lives in keeping with godly wisdom. To quote J.I. Packer, to live wisely, you must be clear-eyed about people and life, seeing life as it is, and then responding with a mind dependent on the wisdom of God. To ensure we're doing so, we need to answer some more questions. So number one, what are the characteristics of godly wisdom? Number two, how does godly wisdom manifest itself? Number three, where does godly wisdom come from? And number four, because we want to live according to it, how do we acquire godly wisdom? So the first characteristic to look at is seen in verse 13. A wise man shows his works in the meekness of wisdom. So what is meekness? Hughes equates it with humility and describes it as, and I quote, the true root of wisdom, a profound understanding of the greatness of God and our own finiteness in sin, which in turn facilitates the God-glorifying character trait of meekness. Wisdom and meekness are interrelated. Meekness is the moral character of wisdom. Close quote. So we also seen the term meekness used in the Beatitudes. In Matthew 5, 5, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. I looked up articles because I was trying to, as I was doing my research here, and I found an article on the topic of meekness referring to how it was used in the Beatitudes. And it says, The reason these characteristics and virtues are bestowed or given is because they are not naturally possessed by the recipients nor are their recipients in themselves able to produce these qualities. So meekness is not something that comes naturally to us. 
And meekness is not something that you can get by just saying, oh, I really want to be humble. Right? There was a song about that once, I think. You may remember it if you're older than me or my age. Right? It is hard to be humble, I believe, was part of what they talked about in that song when you're as wonderful as the author was. Meekness is not a characteristic that we naturally possess. So if we're acting in meekness, it's because the Holy Spirit is enabling us to do so. So there's a difference between meekness and weakness, right? If you're acting in weakness and misidentifying that as meekness, then you might think you're there. But that's not the case. Meekness is humility and submission to God. When you practice wisdom and meekness, you are doing so in humility and submission to God, placing God's will before your own. Hughes says, but what about meekness and gentleness? Apart which from there is, apart which from there, let me try to say this again, apart from which there is no wisdom. Please don't miss the significance of what he just said. If there's no meekness, there is no godly wisdom. If you're walking in pride and the wisdom that you're sharing is based on that pride, that's not godly wisdom. You can be a fairly wise guy in the eyes of the world, but you're not exercising godly wisdom if it's selfish or if it's not being done in meekness. Meekness is what separates godly wisdom from worldly wisdom. Understanding the importance of meekness should drive us to seek it. Thankfully, Hughes doesn't just tell us how important it is and then leave us out there to see if we can attain it. He goes on to tell us what we, that we can be confident about receiving ma- uh, meekness. This is within reach. In fact, it is one of the fruits of the Spirit listed in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. We know it's possible because as Christians we are in Jesus, who urged us to take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle, meek, mild, and humble in heart. He promises that if we consciously yoke ourselves to him, we will learn meekness and humility, and we will find rest for our souls. Seek your meekness in Christ. There are other characteristics of godly wisdom, and we find them listed in verse 17. The first thing you'll notice is that these stand in stark contrast to the characteristics that we saw in worldly wisdom. So let's take a look at each of these. First is pure. It is directly opposite of the polluted, abhorrent, evil motivation of worldly wisdom, which is for our own selfish gain. Purity and godly wisdom is when we are sincerely motivated to apply the knowledge God has given us for the glory of God and the edification of others, not for our own selfish gain. Peaceable. One who is peaceable is one who is not argumentative or constantly looking to quarrel. Being an argumentative person is something that can be born of good intentions. Often, an an argumentative person honestly feels that it is critical that they help you understand your mistake and thus provide you with an opportunity to improve. Right? I know that's the reason I always do it. If I'm arguing with you, it's because I just need to help you see where you're just this wrong. That's big of me, don't you think? That's what I should do. No. Nope, nope, nope. Um, 
be careful here. If you find yourself being an argumentative person to some degree, ask yourself, are you actually engaging in the argument to help your brother or sister and improve your own understanding? Or are you doing it to prove yourself right? If you are doing so to prove you are right, your reason for being argumentative is most likely based on pride. In James 4.1, we read that quarrels are caused by selfish ambition. In contrast, a peaceable person does all they can to live in peace as we are instructed in Romans 12.18. The next characteristic we'll look at is gentleness. Gentleness is exemplified in Paul's command to Titus to remind the believers, quote, to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Biblical gentleness treats others with patience and kindness understands that it is only by the grace of God that we believe and have been saved. The goal of gentleness is to reflect the love of God. Please do not hear me saying that we should compromise on sin or deny the truth of Scripture as some Christian leaders are willing to do today for the sake of being loving or gentle. It is not by any means loving to tell somebody that what they're doing is not sin when the Bible clearly says that it is. In fact, it's the exact opposite. Let me challenge you. When you are sharing the truth, strive to do so in a manner that if the hearer is going to be offended, that it is the truth that will offend, not the speaker. Everybody understand the difference? Next characteristic is open to reason. As Christians, we are called to be willing to reason. To reason is not to get your way by force or coercion, either physically or verbally. Rather, to be open to reason is to be willing to see the other person's perspective and to articulate your own perspective in a way that is gentle and peaceable. The goal being the correct understanding and growth of both parties. Keep in mind that the opposite of open to reason is foolish. Now, so let's say I'm having a conversation about something with somebody and I'm trying to argue from the Bible that what they're doing is sinful, right? And I'm trying to do it in a way that reflects God's love and that is open to reason. How am I going to grow through that conversation? I've already got a locked-in understanding of, of what sin is and how it offends God. So how am I going to grow? I'm going to grow in my ability not to be argumentative. I'm going to grow in my ability to share the Word of God in a way that reflects His love without compromising the truth of it. So there's always room for us to grow when we have opportunities to be reasonable. Next characteristic is full of mercy and good fruits. Next, James says, Godly wisdom is full of mercy and good fruits. To be full of good fruits means to consistently live by the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If you're living that way, you will be exercising godly wisdom. 
When I think of someone who is full of mercy and good fruits, I think of a lady who is a dear friend of Lynn and I, right? I've known, that, known her since before we got married. We were at her wedding, right? Such an incredible woman. She loves the Lord, and I'm telling you, in my opinion, I have never been in communication with her where she wasn't walking in godly wisdom and sharing the truth and loving people genuinely. Now, if you ask her, she would tell you, yeah, no. She's not perfect. She knows she's not perfect. I know she's not perfect. But I've known this person for a long time. I know her heart. She's one of those people that you want to come up to you and tell you what you're doing wrong. Seriously, she is that gifted at it. She loves the Lord. She loves God's people. And she has an incredible power for discernment. She doesn't take it on herself to stand up in front of a room and teach people. That is not what her calling is. And she'll tell you, that's not what God calls women to do. But she is a trusted friend. And for every trusted friend of hers, she will share the truth with you. People like that are blessings. It's people like that that you want to have in your life. It's that's what you want to be a person like that. Because when you're a person like that, people will come to you and you will have the chance to share the truth of the gospel with them. So let me encourage you to be a person like that. Impartial and sincere. In chapter 2, James gave his readers a good tongue lashing for the way that they based their the way that they treated others based on the other people's social status or whether or not the other people could profit the, peop the, the people in the church. All, as with all these characteristics, we must be sincere when we are being impartial. It is of no value to pretend to be impartial or sincere. We are called to be sincerely impartial and sincerely love all fellow believers and treat them with the respect due a child of God. Now, as you probably noticed, each of these characteristics are focused on obedience to God and the welfare of others in contrast to the characteristics of worldly wisdom, which are focused on self and meeting one's own perceived wants and needs. Just as the characteristics of godly wisdom are opposed to the characteristics of worldly wisdom, so the manifestations or the fruits of godly wisdom stand in stark contrast to the manifestations or fruit of worldly wisdom. Instead of causing disorder and vile practice, as worldly wisdom does, godly wisdom produces peace and righteousness. So how are you doing here? Individually, ask yourself, what fruit am I producing? Are you demonstrating godly wisdom and humility? If so, according to God's word, you are producing a harvest of righteousness. So now that we know the characteristics of godly wisdom and how it manifests itself in righteousness, let's look at where godly wisdom comes from. James answers this question for us in James 1.5. For if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Godly wisdom comes from God. It is a gift he gives to all who ask of him. That's why godly wisdom is pure, because it comes directly from God, who is pure. Godly wisdom doesn't come from logic or deep studies of academic things. That's where you get knowledge. 
godly wisdom, the ability to use that knowledge, is a gift from God. So finally, I want to answer our last question. How do we acquire godly wisdom? As we just saw, godly wisdom is a gift given by God to those who ask in faith. That truth is confirmed when in 2 Chronicles 1.10 you see the story of Solomon. God told Solomon, ask me for anything. What did he choose? Wisdom. He chose wisdom. He chose wisdom because he wanted to be able to faithfully and well lead the people that God had entrusted to his care. That's godly wisdom. And when I say God grants wisdom those who, to those who ask for it, it's true. Some people might say, well, I, I've asked and I just don't get it. If you are believing in Christ for your salvation and you ask him, he is granting you godly wisdom. The fact that you can trust him for your salvation is already an indicator that he's granted you godly wisdom. Now it's time for you to practice it. How do we do that, right? How do we continue to grow in godly wisdom? What are some of the means of grace the Lord uses to increase our knowledge and our godly wisdom? Some of those include paying attention while sitting under sound teaching. So if you're sleeping when Travis is up here, you're missing an opportunity. Nobody looks asleep yet today, so well done. Fellowshipping with other believers around God's Word. Isn't that an awesome thing to do? Right? It's one thing to do it here, right? And it's one thing to do it in growth class. It's, a, it's even funner to do it in some of our disciple groups. It's fun to do it one-on-one -on -one with other people. If you love the Word of God and you love the people of God, spend time in the Word of God together. Personal quiet time is important. But I tell you, every weekday morning that it's possible Noah and I both get up. It doesn't matter what time it is. We try to get up so we can spend time together in the Word before we start our days. And I like that. I like that a great deal. I do spend some time in the Word by myself, but I really feel like I even get more out of it when I'm spending it with Noah because we're bouncing things off of each other, right? The whole iron sharpens iron concept. It's, it's incredible. And if you're not doing that with somebody on a regular basis, let me recommend you do because you really will be amazed by how God will use that in your life. Discussing the things of God, as I said, reminding ourselves daily of the gospel. Reminding ourselves every single day that Christ has saved us because we have trusted in Him and Him alone for our salvation. Reminding yourself of that will help steer how you act. But most importantly, Godly wisdom comes from spending time with God in prayer and reading the word that he's given us. That is how we know his will and how to apply the knowledge he gives us in a way that brings him glory and edifies others. So in closing, please allow me to address the practical, uh, to address the practical application of what I've been sharing here today. As I said at the beginning, at PRC, one reason we teach the Word of God is so it can be applied to our lives. Remember, there's a difference between knowledge and wisdom. Wisdom is the application of knowledge. If you apply wisdom in a way that primarily advances yourself for selfish gain, even when it goes against the Word of God, 
you are exercising worldly wisdom. And that is a sin. If you are exercising worldly wisdom, you need to stop deceiving yourself and denying this truth about your motivation. You need to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to help you honestly examine your heart that you might recognize your sin and turn away from it. In contrast, strive to exercise godly wisdom. Use the knowledge God blessed you with to His glory. Pray that God will help you to regularly apply knowledge meekly, trusting Him to guide your steps, walking in His ways, using wisdom in keeping with His principles that you learn from His Word. And you will be exercising godly wisdom. We are people, the physical offspring of Adam. We will fail at exercising and extending godly wisdom perfectly. This is why we need the grace of God in Jesus Christ. This is why we can't just look at the way we're behaving from day to day and give up because we're struggling. You have to constantly come back to who it is that Christ is. You have to constantly remind yourself of the gospel and constantly move forward, understanding that you are a blood-bought, forgiven person. Set that stuff behind you. Repent of it and move forward to glorify God. If you find yourself living a, char a life characterized by worldly wisdom, you need to recognize your need for a Savior. Your sin is an offense against God who is perfectly holy and unable to overlook sin. Sin must be atoned for, and that can only be done by a blood sacrifice as demonstrated in the Old Testament. Jesus is the Savior God has graciously provided. When we were still sinners practicing worldly wisdom, Christ died for us to provide the perfect sacrifice, the only sacrifice sufficient to pay for our sins, one time and for all times. If you are not trusting in Jesus and Jesus alone for your salvation, please understand that you are not saved. There is nothing else that can save you. Not Jesus and your works, certainly not just your works. It is a simple, believing, repentant faith in Jesus that saves you. That is all there is to it. And if you are hearing my voice today or when this thing gets on the, the internet, please understand if you need to talk to somebody about this, if you need more clarification, reach out to Travis, reach out to me, to Ben, to Anthony, to any believer in this body. They've all heard the gospel. They all know how it works, and they're all willing to share it with you. Please don't not act on the call of the Holy Spirit in your life. Please. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come humbly before you, Lord, today, grateful for the wisdom you give, asking, Lord, that you will forgive us when we fail to, work, to walk in your ways, to exercise the godly wisdom that you offer to all of your children. Lord, we do seek to serve you, to glorify you, and to honor you, but we do so imperfectly. So, Father, please forgive us for the times that we fail you. Lord, help us to walk rightly before you. In Jesus' name, amen.